you're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Our guest in episode 27 is paleontologist and science illustrator Matt Dempsey, currently studying for his PhD in Arkansas Biomechanics at the University of Liverpool. You may recall hearing briefly from him among the mini guest interviews in our TEDSUCON 2022 episode. And now you get to hear him at length as he speaks to Niels and Mark later. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Dinosaurium, written by Barbara Brenner and illustrated by Donna Braginets, published by Bantam Books in 1993. But first, Mark, you have something about the Rutland Sea Dragon to tell us. Yes, I should point out we couldn't be bothered to do proper news anymore, so I'm just going to sort of um, shoot from the hip here. However... (laughs) I have been reading a paper published in the Proceedings of the Geologists Association online, excavating the Rutland Sea Dragon, the largest ichthyosaur skeleton ever found in the UK. Brackets, whippy muzzle information to ask your lower Jurassic. Uh, It's by Larkin et al. The second author is some guy called Dean Lomax. um, I've never heard of him. Yeah, this same Dean Lomax character seems to pop up a awful lot in the text and in the citations and all kinds of things about, I don't know who he thinks he is, this guy, but um, he's in there Certainly a Certainly there at TetsuCon 22 as well. Yeah, he was, he was, he was, still, he was there, wasn't he? I vaguely, vaguely remember. <laughs> he might be at 23 as well. Quite possibly. I mean, you know, he's one of those guys who seems to be involved with paleontology a bit. Um Anyway, this is about the excavation of the extremely large Temnodontosaurus from Rutland Water. And it is properly large. d is quite tall, I gather. There's a <laughs> photograph of him in here alongside the specimen. It says he's um, six foot five, which is pretty tall. Um, yeah. 196 centimetres. But this Temnodontosaurus is even longer than him by quite some you know, metres. In fact, he's about the same length as a skull. I mean, this thing is enormous. It's also possibly the first Temnodontosaurus uh, trigonodon found in the UK, which greatly expands its geographic range. But yes, the paper is about the excavation process from Rutland Water. Um, basically, it was discovered during maintenance in the nature reserve area and, yeah, uncovered by a team facing, obviously, great many obstacles, as many <laughs> most teams who um, dig up fossils normally do. Uh, in this case, there are also COVID restrictions and wet mud and all kinds of things. And it's interesting, the combination of modern techniques so 3D scanning, photogrammetry, that kind of thing, with the old good old fashioned putting things in big old plaster jackets and hauling them away uh, sort of technique. As so you do. As you do, as people have been doing for decades and decades. So yeah, it's an interesting read, especially interesting as this year was actually the first time I've ever been to, to Rutland Water. So obviously recognize a few of the uh, sort of locations. It's nice to have that link. Definitely worth the read. It is very accessible to enthusiasts. Uh, it's obviously gets fairly technical in places, particularly when it comes to micro fossils from the, from the strata, but. Oh gosh, those are the, the, the little tiny, tiny shellfish fragments yes, or bacterial exactly. traces or whatever. Well, many of the first one. Yes. The tiny shellfish fragments, exactly that. So lots and lots of that in here, uh, in one section in particular, but nevertheless, it is very accessible and it's a fascinating read of how they uncovered this thing. Well, I thought it was, should be useful if you ever happen to stumble across a giant marine reptile that you need to dig out of the ground. You've got some guidance here. Yeah, from people who've done it before. Is that the biggest Mesozoic thing from Britain then? 
Not, I don't know if it's the biggest Mesozoic thing, because uh, pretty hefty Cetiosaurus has been discovered as well. It's possibly one of the oh, biggest, yeah. or at least again. the biggest really completely known marine reptile, I think. I also like to mention that I recently revisited the Naturalis, on a completely unrelated note, the, the Naturalis Museum in Leiden in the Netherlands. Yeah, we went together. We, Niels and I went together, along with Agatha and Marcia, and we had a nice time. Yeah, our partners. Yes, dinosaur area is still fun. The area with all the taxidermy randomly arranged with lots of epic music and lighting is still mildly infuriating because I just want to pick up things and reorganize them according to their clades. But, you know, it's fine. They've done what they did. And it's basically like a big old art installation. Like, look at the diversity of everything. But, yeah, there's some librarian part of me that got frustrated by all that. But nevertheless, the dinosaur section is cool and it's very nice to see Trix. Obviously, Trix is an extremely impressive specimen. They've mounted it really nicely. Yes, I know the pose is slightly odd, but at least you can get a really good look at the skull. I'd forgotten Trix was there. Trix, yes, named yes. after the abdicated queen with the funny hair. And, and the naturalis, yeah. Of course, uh, Trix is partially bought uh, from Dutch tax money. So she is at least partially the property of the Dutch people. So I can claim at least some ownership over Trix. So they should really let you in there and see that for free. Nothing else, of course, just yeah. blindfold you through the rest of it. But they should let you see that for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Naturalis. Uh, I, I had, of course, been there a few times before, uh, including once with you, uh, Mark. They had added a different exhibition now about evolution. And I have to say, I think that is a great improvement because evolution was kind of conspicuous in its absence as a concept before. Right. And I do think it gives a little bit of, you know, much needed, you know, scientific backbone to sort of the razzle dazzle, especially of that taxidermy hall, which is. A bunch of stuff that is very pretty to look at, but as you say, Mark, just completely randomly arranged in a way that is aesthetically pleasing. But when I reviewed Naturalis, I had a whole rant about that, and I, I'm, I'm treading over the same ground. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I do agree with you that uh, at least no, they they at least have this evolution exhibition, which does make the explicit point that everything's interrelated and yes. so on and so forth. And the dinosaur stuff is very cool. Yeah, they're still working on their herd of Triceratops, which. Uh, I may or may not have uh, talked about on the blog. That work, the preparation work, is nearing completion. The Triceratops uh, specimens, there are six of them, including the one that is already mounted in the museum, are going to be all mounted together at some point. They will have a temporary home at the current Naturalis Museum, after which point they will tour Europe. So watch this space. Six of them, though. That's gonna. That's yeah. going to demand a huge is, space. It's unprecedented. It's the largest uh, amalgamation of Triceratops ever found. That's incredible. Unusual because they're normally found quite isolated. Unlike some they're Ceratopsians, normally found isolated. Yeah. Even in North America, other Ceratopsians people have found bone beds, particularly Centrosaurs, things like what Centrosaurus. Yeah. There, yeah, huge bone beds. Yes. And Triceratops is normally found as just sort of isolated individuals. Maybe the odd couple here and there, but it's. Unusual to find such an amalgamation of them. That's fantastic. Yeah, and they're going to tour Europe. I didn't wasn't aware of that. So they're just going to have a couple of really big traders and just <laughs> all them around. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. That's fantastic. <laughs> yes, and Peng, there was yes, a dinosaur you, you wanted to talk about that you have been illustrating. Well, I, I don't think the, the publication of the description of Fujian Veneta earlier this month kind of escaped uh, most of our listeners. Um, it's an Anchionithid avian from the late Jurassic Nanyuan formation of Fujian province, China. And as such, it is yet another piece in the dinosaur birth puzzle, of course. But 
rather than giving you a precy of the paper by Shu et al., which we will link to in our show notes, I've been fascinated by some of the reconstructions of this animal. Um, do I take it as read that both of my co-hosts are probably by this stage as familiar with this publication as the Associated Artworks, uh, as I am? Probably not as you are. <laughs> Well, not quite, but I'm aware of it, yeah. I think you will be familiar with um, the official um, press release artwork by uh, Chong Zhao. Yes, we've seen that. Yes. Yeah. yeah I've seen that. Well, here's the thing. The thing that, that struck me is that um, Fujian Veneta's uh, most distinguishing features are, of course, its long hind limbs, which, uh, together with other fossils from the same formation being those of aquatic or semi-aquatic vertebrates, seem to suggest that it may have lived in a swamp-like environment and consequently may have been a wader, not unlike today's wading birds. Um, based on this fact, and on its being an anchionicid, uh, the temptation to reconstruct this animal as more or less anchionis with longer legs is no doubt high. And it is the direction which many artists seem to have taken, namely the uh, the, the artwork accompanying the, the press release by Trump Zhao, as we've just mentioned. Um, yeah, I just thought it was anchionis at first. Well, that's it, you see, because it pretty much answers this description. It is black and white with wing feather arrangements uh, like those of Ancionis, and it has a great big feather crest. And a similar path has been taken by many other artists, too. Um, Skepticism with regard to the wading lifestyle has been expressed by some, and with good reason, because many of today's long-legged birds are not waders, um, a striking example of which is the secretary bird, uh, whose arid habitat yes. is as far away from wetlands as can be. Yeah, exactly. But many artists have taken this direction in, in reconstructing Fuji and Veneta. But um, but I've been fascinated enough that though these days I'm too worn out to join in the race to draw the latest newly described dinosaur, um, there was an attempt, shall we call it, on my part in this instance. And um, what I noticed uh, for myself when, when drawing this was that the other thing which a lot of people have latched on are those long legs, um, the, the dramatic proportions, the very slim uh, wading bird-like, actually, uh, anatomy of this animal. But I found that when I, although I did start out with um, a skeletal that um, that answers all, all these proportions, I found that when I uh, generously covered it in feathers, the proportions ended up not looking that dramatic, actually. Um, I mean, yes, the legs are long, but but they don't look weirdly long, um, which is, again, another direction that some artists have taken. And, and all of this saying, uh, not in any way detracting from anybody's approaches. Um, these are just some of my observations from, from drawing the thing myself. Some small birds do have surprisingly long legs when you take the feathers away. And it's just normally completely yeah. concealed by the plumage. So that doesn't make sense to me. This owls. is it. Yeah, exactly <laughs> this. I mean, I mean, owls is probably the most obvious example. You, you wouldn't realize <laughs> just looking at them until, you know, you lifted their underskirts, as it were. But essentially, this is what I found when I when I drew my my little version of Fujian Veneta. Um, it's it's a plump looking thing, and its legs are long, but they don't look peculiarly long. And suddenly, the whole wading appearance disappears um, when I've done it this yeah. way. I didn't set it in a wading uh, landscape, um, you know, taking into account the skepticism that that a few others have expressed. I have no personal opinion on this because I think you know it could just be, it could be anything. Sure. <laughs> um, and also the fact that uh, 
a few articles um, have alluded to its being the size of a pheasant. You know, the minute you say something looks like a pheasant, I'm going to run away with that idea. (laughs) Suddenly it sounds like something with cursorial limbs. Like you think of pheasants being highly cursorial and then maybe it just has like just a cursorial anchiornis rather than... uh... Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly it. And you know how fond I am of Fasianidae. I I do not stop talking about them. So yeah, so like I said, the minute you you describe something as as being pheasant-sized, I'm running away with that idea. And you can see a lot of that reflected in the drawing I made. And of course, um, we we will share this drawing in in the show notes as well. Yes. That's my my Fujian ground phoenix, as I've taken to calling it. I just like the idea, especially now that, that I've gone the, the sort of pheasant-like route. Again, Fasianidae, uh, I always associate with the, the phoenix and the, uh, the firebird myths and legends. Hang on, um, before we move on, somebody should say, go on. it is a really lovely reconstruction. Oh, thank you very much. Thank nice. you, Niels. I saw that <laughs> pop up. And I thought it was very, it was very nice, very oh. pleasant. I wouldn't mind a print of that. I don't know where I put it, but <laughs> Anyway, well... Let us on to our vintage dinosaur art. Vintage dinosaur art. I I have been wondering um, because um, our, our our fellow blog contributor Sophie um, has been sharing what she calls um, nostalgic dinosaur art on her Twitter, and it occurred to me that this is a, a beautiful title to adopt for works that don't necessarily fall into the vintage proper category, um, such as uh, our subject this month, which was published in 1993. Um, Dinosaurium, written by Barbara Brenner and illustrated by Donna Braginets. Now, um, Niels, I know you're a great fan of this book and of Donna, so perhaps you'd like to start. Well, somebody, um, forgive me, I, I don't remember who recommended this to me on Facebook, I believe, and uh, I ordered a copy and I was completely blown away by it. I thought, surely this isn't 93, surely this is like 2003 or something. This looks so modern to me in all the best ways. Uh, Mm. The dinosaurs look absolutely beautiful, they look modern, they look sleek, they look clean, as I was discussing with Mark just now before we started recording. And at the same time, stylized and whimsical and not quite realistic but still scientifically um, appropriate in a way that we really like to champion here and I really took it to heart and uh, I'm I'm very sorry I never saw this when I when I was a child because it would have been an absolute childhood favorite me too yeah I have to agree with you there yes absolutely I would have liked this very much I think sort of peak 90s paleo art this stuff so it's mm. it's mm. very reminiscent of the style of paul and also artists like brian fanchak in that it has yeah. as you say I mean, paul is the obvious is the obvious yeah. paul's uh, the obvious one but also brian fanchak yes but i don't think no but i doubt there was anybody working in the 90s who could have escaped uh paul's influence in no, any way absolutely not that was the definitely the peak greg paul era of paleo art but it's a very similar style there in that it's obviously very well researched and painted by somebody who very much knows what they're doing and knows the way around the anatomy. It's done plenty of background reading. And yeah, in the same way as Brian Franchak, it's very sort of clean looking. You can see all the musculature. I mean, it's 
very fitting that we should have spoken to Matt Dempsey, who has a similar style. And by its own admission, it's because you yeah. know he's, he's done a lot of hard work into making these rigorous reconstructions, and he doesn't particularly want to hide it under lots of wattles and spines and silly bits. So it's it almost harks back to this very clean, as I said, peak nineties for me style that's embodied by Bragnitz in this book. Uh, there was also a lot of, in the same way that Franchek has often been criticised for, there's a lot of sort of convenient lateral view going on, um, which again is a kind of, perhaps you could argue it's a symptom of this diagrammatic approach, but it's more than made up for by the fact that it all looks really, really nice. <laughs> like, it's mm. really nice. I mean, there was so much going on around that time that was still copying the Normanpedia, civic work from Normanpedia, still copying even older yeah. stuff, that this, yes. you know, this and... The Louise Ray illustrated Osborne book from around that time as well. I mean, I saw that one when I was a kid and that blew my mind. And this would also have equally blown my mind for the same reasons in that it just looks, it's so colorful. Dinosaur looks so modern and up to date and well-researched. And yeah, like you said, I regret that I never saw it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So what's going on with this book? And uh, I've only shown you the scans. Uh, I've got a copy here. The The central conceit of it is... The Dinosaurium is a museum. The book itself is a museum. And you see all these people, uh, these families and children, you see them enter this museum and the museum contains the dinosaur world itself. So it's a museum that is filled not just with dinosaurs, but with full-on prehistoric landscapes full of animals and stuff going on. It's a lovely conceit in itself. I mean, rather than being another encyclopedia-style list book, I think this is a lovely approach to have taken. It's also a good excuse to mix and match dinosaurs from different eras in a deliberately kind of anachronistic way, because, of course, this isn't literally showing yes, you the Mesozoic in a particular time. It's showing you this museum, which they have deliberately mixed things to you know, thematically, a bit like that gallery in Naturalis, actually, but, you know, with a natural explanation. Yeah. Uh, so beyond it, beyond it, it looks good. There are reasons. I mean, my favourite page on this is where they have a selection of dinosaurs that didn't ostensibly have any weapons or armour to defend themselves, but so they are depicted as being camouflaged. Oh, that's my favourite. Yes, that's my favourite as, well. as well. That's that's. I'm not surprised yeah, at all. Beautiful. Yeah. No, I mean, not least the, the presence of the great big hadrosaur <laughs> in um, taking up the taking up the majority of the space, the the Critosaurus. But um, really but other than that, yes, as you say, apart from the hadrosaur, it's just such a beautiful spread. It's the um, the wonderful use of uh, the depiction of the camouflage, and um, and the palette. It's it's just gorgeous. It's, I mean, have you ever seen a hadrosaur look like that? Um, since, kind of. Since then, not perhaps, exactly, but, but perhaps yeah. not at the time. <laughs> but if you would look at this thing in isolation, it would look extremely striking because it's white and it has this very crisp delineations of the green spots, mm. and yet it completely disappears in that forest. Uh, I think it's I think it's genius, frankly. This is a work of genius. Yeah, completely. But it's not yes, just that. There's yeah. a bunch more dinosaurs here, and you really have to look <laughs> that, for them. But that's it. You do, yeah. That's just it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the Critosaurus, owing to its size, might be the most obvious. But then, once you start looking, I just want to point out in terms of camouflage hadrosaurs, I have to point out Ellie Kish, the work that she did. I think was it Hypacrosaurus oh, yes. illustrated. 
yeah. camouflage in a similar way, in a similar cryptic way in a forest. So it's not an entirely original idea, but it's one that's not explored that often. And certainly there's a different color palette at play here. I really, yeah, especially the exploration of dinosaurs and the way they would have used color, because of course, presumably they mostly had very good color vision uh, in line with modern day reptiles and birds. Well, birds are reptiles. Redundant department is redundant. We're saying again. <laughs> so yeah the, the, the exploration of color so the book in general is very colorful there are a lot of bright colors but in this page in yeah. particular yes you mentioned the critosaurus being extremely crisply detailed with that beautiful patterning which as you said it's a bit like um some modern mammals how in isolation they look kind of ridiculous but then you place them against certain backgrounds and it all makes sense also the, the massive spondylus on the right is yeah just stunning look i've really Love that color patterning. And it's sort of less obviously designed for the scene as well in this case. So the Critosaurus looks, you could sort of say, yeah, but okay, but that's kind of been deliberately done that way by the artist, a bit of artistic license because it blends in there a bit too convincingly, like with all these white tree too trunks. Well, yeah. uh, you can't yeah. really say that about the massive <laughs> spondylus. So it looks like it could just be no. a realistically camouflage animal that you know happens to blend in pretty well with the forest environment. Um, and of course, it's a completely mm. different yeah. era. The same with the small Yandusaurus that is standing underneath the Cretosaurus. Yes. Yeah, easily missed that one. Yeah. Well, if it weren't for the text it label. It does help, of course, that there are all these people standing around looking at it, right? Looking and, uh, at the... On the far right, <laughs> yes. there, is the, uh, there is the dad holding his child, pointing out the dinosaur. Do you see it? Do you see it? Yeah, see what? Yeah. You see this like five-ton hadrosaur <laughs> <laughs> right in front of you? Oh, yeah, I can see it now. Thanks, Daddy. Okay, so there are a few animals or designs in here that are somewhat reminiscent of Greg Paul, and obviously I don't think there are any direct copies unless I'm missing something, which is... I don't think so. Fairly likely, actually. Uh, I, I can't I mean, if you any. do your research in the early 90s, you can't escape coming out looking like Greg Paul. Nah. No, but that's... Yeah. So the only thing that I think is somewhat reminiscent of someone else's work is the Quetzalcoatlus which definitely has a very Sibikian colour scheme going on. It's with the red head. Where can and, we find that? That's uh, the flight chamber. The flight chamber. Uh, spread. Ah, um, yes. the flight chamber. It's, yeah, so there's a big Quetzalcoatlus there. It's, it's depicted elsewhere as well. Maybe I think it's on the cover. It's on the book um, cover. Yeah. That's another thing with this, uh, with this book. All the dinosaurs are kind of recurring characters. Mm. If it's thematically appropriate for them to show up on a page then they will be there. Some of the designs are sort of characters that show up again and again. Yes. That's a really great device. Yeah, I really like that. And they have a consistent appearance and coloration as well, which is, you might take for granted, but actually surprisingly rare in some dinosaur books. I mean, it's just, in some books, you know, you get like five different versions of T-Rex and oh, yeah, it's not really yeah. clear why. But Well, because once the possibilities are there, um, that you can approach it in many different ways. Artists are going to do exactly that. You know, we're going to have different variations of them, as many as we'd like to explore. But um, but sometimes that doesn't always work in a book that um, that needs that unification. And and for the most part, encyclopedia style books, um, you can get away with that because you're not you're not making characters out of them the way yeah. that this book is. Um, and it's it even goes a bit further because some of these designs carry over into some of Donna's other books as well. Ah, oh, even better. Yeah, like how the, the Carithosaurus on page 31 appears slightly differently, but in a, in a sort of similar color scheme 
in some of her other books, like the Ornithomimus book, I, I seem to recall, one of the books that she did with yeah. uh, Don Lessem. Yeah, but I, I love this device, the fact that they do appear in her other books, because it does feel like you are in this artist's world. These are the dinosaurs in Donna's world, and, um, and so they appear elsewhere in her other works. Yeah. Returning to this idea of peak 90s, I wanted to point out the Deinonychus on page 33 as just being so incredibly of its time but, oh, the, but at the same yes. time yes. really nice for its time i mean okay she probably yeah. wasn't allowed i don't know if she would have gone for feathers if she had the chance i know uh louise did want to at the time he did the osborne book but it's the only time he capitulated um and obviously greg paul had mm-hmm. done it in predatory dinosaurs of the world it may be that um donna wasn't allowed but that nevertheless that Dononicus is just sort of like i said it's peak 90s it's just, it's, I, re- I really yeah. like it. So it's it's no, perfectly nostalgic and well-painted and executed. It's just, it's nice. Yeah, it's nostalgic. It's a little bit rose-worn and it's a little bit walking with dinosaurs, except <laughs> predates yes. that. Walking with dinosaurs yes. is, much, is much later. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a transition, Deinonychus, if you will. And, and this is another thing about uh, artwork of the 90s. It does feel very much like a transitional period. And the Deinonychus is kind of a, a, a perfect example of that because it no longer has that strangely Allosaurian head that began perhaps with um, Bucker. It's a, it's a much more accurate streamlined head, much more uh, <laughs> cinematic Velociraptor-like, if you will. Oh, dear. Um, but without having gone um, into the feathered realm just yet, um, but certainly up to date for 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 its time. Yeah, again, I'd be interested to know if Braganitz would have gone for that at the time, or you know, if she was told it was a step too far, or felt it was a bit too far for a book like this. Kind of because I feel like, given a clear level of you know, the amount of research that she had done, and how well executed these are. And how much attention to detail there is. I wonder if she would have done that if she'd had the sort of chance. Uh, I guess uh, I am almost certain that Donna would be able to to tell us exactly uh, the answer to that once um, well, after the episode airs. Tell us, Donna. Um, <laughs> gosh, this this didn't even occur to me when I did the uh, actual review. But look at the Camptosaurus here. They have three colors. What Most artists will do use some counter shading, but here we have a little black band to break up the grayish blue and the white it's 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 genius it's so good oh, yeah, i can see that sorry yeah. yes and it does it does remind one of the great uh african antelope yes it? yes yes it does yeah there are definitely quite a few mammal references going on here hips and by the way is a similar thing mm-hmm. going on black band yeah. instead of separating two yes it does yeah on the same spread and yeah and perfectly answering the the whole the gazelle analog right there by having gazelle-like coloration another one that really pops out at me on page 14 is the allosaurus along with its head tilted a bit to one side and it's sort of yeah. looking down oh yes that kid which is hopefully about to eat yeah that's beautiful yeah that's really that's really nicely done <laughs> and, the, and the archaeopteryx just soaring by <laughs> as i said it's an example of because there's a lot there's a lot of lateral view going on in this book which is fine it's, it's all really nicely done and similar criticisms were aimed at franchise even though his work was also really nice uh but that's sort of an example of well not quite lateral view the head being tilted a bit and uh i wonder i mean that's clearly based on some 3d references because it's really really well done it's excellent perspective on it i wonder if it was um partly using the am and h mount because hmm i don't know the skull on that is a bit sort of truncated 
and I don't know if this is a tiny bit. It's hard to tell because of the perspective. And also the Yemen HB of course, has its head tilted down in a similar way. Speaking of the lateral view thing, there is, of course, the Tarbosaurus on page 16, which is proving me wrong again, because that's got a head-on perspective. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, and the Triceratops, which is slightly slightly off. The head's a bit going into the screen. The head is slightly tilted into the page. Um, yeah. And it's not quite lateral view. But... I don't know. I think most things in here are, you know, it's it's fine. It's well done. At least we get to see everything properly. Uh, I did want to point out the Spinosaur head, which I assume is Baryonyx as well. Um, That's on, Baryonyx, yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's the contents page. Yeah, it is the contents yeah, page. On, uh, on page seven, we see it up close. And then on page eight, when we turn the page, the perspective shifts and we look we look into the dinosaur world. Ah, uh, yeah. There we get another... the uh, full body baryonics a little bit in the distance that's another great little idea so you do perspective shifts on the same scene just to immerse you in this sort of you know pretend museum it's exactly yeah, it's rather sweet isn't it <laughs> that's that spinosaur head the baryonics head is also really nicely done for the time at time when people yeah or some people some artists didn't really know what to do with them um you know was all kinds of weird stuff but both the needs to be quite wide full body lateral view and the head are really well done for the time clearly had some you know paying attention to the reference materials available yeah hard to find much fault with this something that's from 93 and yeah i just really wish i had access to this at the time i mean it would have been one of my favorites for sure yeah it's it's kind Mm. of because you you see all these people walking around in the museum and you we mentioned the allosaurus and how it was about to eat that kid well i i wished it was (laughs) this is a very safe sort of sanitized version of the mesozoic and there's not really much sense of danger uh you know you can just get up close to the animals maybe even pet them and it is sort of wish fulfillment in that sense, it is, but but it's but it's right for the conceit, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. if it is, if the book acts like a museum, that is exactly the environment you would find yourself in, and one which ah, uh, which I and I'm sure you would would have absolutely loved. Be you know the way we we go in and see an animatronics in a museum. Oh and, yeah. And get for that moment, yeah, that first thrill of seeing a moving dinosaur. Um, in the flesh, as much of the flesh as, as it can be described, in that environment. And this this book is very much like that. I mean, certainly when I first saw the, the, the T-Rex animatronic, which is still in London's Natural History Museum, the, the absolute thrill of this is like the closest you're going to get um, with uh, full safety um, to a dinosaur. The whole non-threatening aspect of it in, in a museum environment um, just perfectly suited to the way this book is treated. I think it's lovely and it does make you feel like you are going through a museum on the page yes, and getting to enjoy these dinosaurs up close. But of course, there is a hint of danger here because on page 30... There's a T-Rex eating a triceratops? Yes. As a kid looking a bit shocked by it? <laughs> or probably he's going like, "Ah, oh, brilliant!" Possibly. <laughs> it's the circle of life. I know or anything to go by. <laughs> oh, <no. Yeah. laughs> I mean, that, oh, I hate to bring this up again, but it does remind you of Tim's reaction in in the first Jurassic. Look at Park. how much blood! <laughs> um, yeah, you know, yeah, so much blood. Well, um, look at birds the same yeah. way again. Yeah, okay. Well, it's about the only scene of sort of. It's like the only other bit of gore, <laughs> any kind of hint at predation, and really, yeah. doesn't really like that T Rex killed that Triceratops. It looks more like it's scavenging it, if anything. So the carcass is a bit pristine. 
or at least on the side that we yeah. can see. Maybe the other side's just like a bloody gory mess and it's just conveniently turned away. <laughs> but uh, they can show that in a kid's book. <laughs> One can dream. Yeah, and of course, guess what the Deinonychus is standing on? A carcass. Oh, yes. Yes, but what carcass? Doesn't matter, it's a carcass. No prizes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, God, oh! It is as well. Yeah, God, sorry, I thought you were joking. Yeah, it is Actually, labelled. Isn't no, it? no, that's, that's why. It, yeah, hence, just appeared as a carcass. No Justice for Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, type F in the comments, everybody. Well, you know, mm-hmm. Matt Dempsey's going to be upset by this. I don't yeah, know if knew we, about we, this book before, but we we talk a little bit about Tyrannosaurus in the interview. It's uh, it's going to be fun. yeah. Sorry, Matt. Tyrannosaurus is literally just a corpse in this, <laughs> over which Dinonychus stands triumphant. That's it. Oh, dear. Nothing can get to appear alive behind that. No, we can't even have that win, even for a book of this quality. Anyway. Oh, Cedar is eating something. I don't <laughs> sure what. Maybe, it Maybe it's one of its own young, because it was theorized to be a cannibal. <laughs> Poor lizard. Oh, well. Uh, anything else we want to flag up? I like the Phytosaur on the Triassic spread. That's page 12 and 13. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Phytosaur. Who doesn't have a fightosaur? Yay. A fightosaur. It's not a dinosaur. (laughs) 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 And quadrupedal platyosaurus in the background, which is just there to upset Hendrick Medicine. Shocking. Shocking. Um, Protoceratops has a corn snake for a tail. I don't know if you've seen that. It's very tiny. Oh, is that a corn snake? I don't remember. I get it snakes. It's that snake with the orange stripes with the black outlines. Um, Sorry, I don't know my American snakes. Milk snake. A milk snake. Okay, sorry. So it's a milk snake. So he has a milk snake tail. You can tell because it brings all the boys to the yard. Uh, oh. Oh, Neil. You need to edit oh, in some... Have to um, editing crickets again. <laughs> yeah, so, so you need to edit in some copyright-free booing sound here. Um, oh, like no. crowd booing sound effect. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah, milk snake tail. That's kind of interesting. So stripy tails. I love stripy tails. Yandisaurus is strong. Everyone loves banded tails. We all love yeah. banded tails. They are, you know, it's the most, it's kind of, it's inescapable. It's the most uh, uh, intuitive thing to do with tails. Yes. Just something up. And that Carithosaurus you mentioned earlier with the yellow stripe going down, which is very fetching. All the way down definitely. the back along the tail. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a huge book, but it's uh, definitely a find that I am extremely satisfied with. I think this is about as good as early 90s dinosaur books get. Yeah, mm. the art basically. So, like I said earlier on, it's peak early 90s, along with things like Brian Fanjack and Greg Paul. It is, isn't um, it? For me. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely. And the best stuff in that dinosaurs magazine, like Jim Robbins and Graham Rosewall. You know, it's... Yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Agreed. Yeah. So... Yes, very much agreed. The good stuff. It's the good stuff. It's the good... It's the, the good stuff. This is the good stuff, man. Good it's stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely. There's a whole, there's a great freshness to this book. I think that's a good word for it because not only is the theme, the conceit of it, of making it a literary museum and just the whole palette choice. There is, it's a colourful, fresh, a vibrant take with a great sense of naturalism coupled with stylization that you uh, mentioned earlier, Niels. I, I just, I, I love that so much. It's just, it's beautiful. It's that lovely balance of not trying to be uh, overly detailed or, or, or you know, photographic or illusionistic, but naturalistic enough that we can see the animals for what they are. It is, it is a peak 90s dinosaur book for all those reasons. Today we are speaking with Matt 
Dempsey, who is a PhD student studying musculoskeletal biology, in particular applying it to extinct tetrapods and well, paleontology, in particular ornithischian dinosaurs, but also not ornithischian dinosaurs more recently. Um, but do correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, I'm in the final stages of my PhD. I'm partially associated with the University of Liverpool and partially associated with the London Natural History Museum. And yeah, I'm studying musculoskeletal biology and applying that to vertebrate paleontology, particularly dinosaurs because they're the best bit. They are, yes. <laughs> they are the best <laughs> and the best bit. Um so we spoke to you in TetsuCon last year, and naturally you have been rather busy since then, uh, both with your work, well, you're working on and also just some silly stuff for fun, um, which nevertheless is quite artistically impressive, must be said. But yes. very significantly, well, there was a publication of a paper, uh, Convergent Evolution of Quadrupedality, which I can't say, in Ornithischian Dinosaurs was achieved through disparate falling muscle mechanics. Um you were the lead author on that, I believe? Yes, that was the first paper of my PhD, uh, which was a pretty big one. Uh, it involved building these dynamic models, well, multi-body dynamic models of Ornithischian forelimbs, where I took scans of the forelimb bones of the skeleton and built reconstructions in 3D of the muscle lines of action. The idea behind this paper was we've known for a while that Ornithischian dinosaurs probably evolved from a bipedal ancestor, but the different major groups of Ornithischian dinosaurs, so your armoured phareophorans, that's your stegosaurs and your ankylosaurs, your horned ceratopsians and things like hadrosaurs, they all evolved to move on all fours independently. And, yes. you know, they have different looking limbs and quite different looking proportions and we wanted to investigate differences in the actual musculoskeletal bio biomechanics there was there a difference in muscle anatomy that underpinned these different ways of moving on all fours and that's kind of what we found this uh what we did we measured the leverages of the muscles and found that different these different dinosaur groups were prioritizing different muscle groups during that evolution of walking on all fours it's um you often think of these dinosaurs big four-legged herbivorous dinosaurs as being quite similar but what we tried to show was is that their forelimb anatomy was quite different they found different solutions to the same basic way of moving uh didn't you find that thyrophorans and ceratopsians although not they're not exactly the same they are more similar than either one is to um Ornithopods. Ornithopods because they have more cursorial limb proportions, whereas both ceratopsians and thyrophorans are more heavy set, especially in the case of course ceratopsians, they're very front heavy. Um so I you mentioned um elbow locomotor muscles a lot in the, <laughs> the um I mean, Yeah. I'm hopeless with the terminology, so you have to um fill in. So but yeah, so when you're a when you're a big animal that's bearing a lot of weight on your forelimbs, one of the most important actions of the limb is the extension of the elbow. 
And what you see in these big front heavy ceratopsians and ankylosaurs, there's a spur of bone on the elbow called the olecranon, which gets absolutely massive. They have these huge bony processes on their elbows. And what that does is it increases the leverage of the triceps muscles, which is really crucial for weight bearing. So what you're seeing is you're seeing these different adaptations to weight bearing reflected in both the bones and the inferred pathways of the muscles. Um, but it's more like a, it, there's a weird mosaic of similarities and differences between the different groups. In some ways, the Phariophorans and the Ceratopsians are quite similar. But in other ways, the Ceratopsians are more similar to the Ornithopods. Uh, for example, the pecs in Ceratopsians and Ornithopods, they insert further down the arm than they do in Phariophorans. So it's really right. quite... there's. It's a mixture of different solutions. They're converging in some ways. They're disparate in other ways. There's no right way to move around on all fours and be big is kind of the take home message here. Now, Matt, we uh, we came in pretty hot with the with the technical stuff right away. Yeah, that's quite sciencey. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to ask you uh, more uh, after your personal background. Uh, how did you get started into not just your dinosaur research. I, I imagine you've uh, you've always been fascinated by dinosaurs. Got started into doing dinosaur art and dinosaur reconstruction as well. How did all of that come about? Do you have uh, some sort of story there? Oh, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I could start it. I'm four years old on holiday with my parents and the Ballad of Big Al comes on TV and I'm just transfixed by it. That's where it really starts. But um, I, Gosh, I've always so had... Young. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a good thing that you, you're least exposed to the corrected allosaur horns on those reconstructions yes. at the age. Oh yeah, they did the change the models, the didn't they? Yeah. Um, that's where it really starts. But there's just this long thing. I've always been interested in science and research, but I've always been interested in drawing as well. And um, you know, there was one point where I was considering pivoting into a career in the arts, but ultimately I decided that research was for me. And if I wanted to, you know, do illustration here and there, that could supplement my research. So uh, what I ended up doing is I ended up doing a geology undergraduate degree at the University of Manchester and that, and then I went on to the integrated master's program. So instead of uh, taking a break after doing my bachelor's degree, I just did an extra year that was an accredited master's year. And what I ended up doing there was around the time that I was starting up my master's, there was this initiative between the university and the Manchester Museum to remount this skeleton of a Tenontosaurus, uh, which is a, a ah, Iguanodontian. Here, here, here it comes, yeah. Uh, this Tenontosaurus used to be mounted in the Manchester Museum Gallery, where there is now a big plaster Tyrannosaurus Rex, which, to be fair, is a very good display. In 2004, it was taken off display for, um, for conservation reasons, and... Over the years, multiple students had come and done research projects on this specimen. And when I was studying it, um, 
I was interested in making a digital 3D model of the skeleton because one of the exceptional things about this Tenontosaurus, which is nicknamed April, is it has exceptionally preserved limbs. And I'm really interested in locomotion. So I wanted to build a full body model of the dinosaur so I could study its posture, how it moved. And ultimately, that model became the basis of the design for the new mount. Um, So that dinosaur kind of launched my career and it was what got me into building 3D models of skeletons. It's what got me interested in locomotion and it's what led me towards my PhD. And that skeleton is back on display in the Manchester Museum Gallery now Uh, Over the course of a few years, what I would do is I would come in as the scientific consultant and I would essentially direct the the guy that was building the mount and the conservation team who were repairing and reassembling the skeleton. I would help them with things like IDing which bones were which, showing them how they should fit together. And they did an absolutely excellent job. You know, one day I would come in and I would help them mount, say, the femur. The next week I would come in and the entire spine was on the frame in the posture that I had modeled, you know, years prior. So it was really amazing to see the conservation team build that skeleton and see it in a posture where before that a posture based on modeling work that I had done. It was really quite a gratifying experience and yeah. everyone who worked on that did such an exceptional job. Uh, I was, was going to say, um, that sounds really satisfying. Absolutely. <laughs> to see that, yeah. to see that mounted yeah, there, the was, poster that you designed. It was wonderful. Together. And, you know, it, it started out, um, there was myself and, you know, a, a group of similarly dinosaur inclined students during my, who were in my year at, at the University of Manchester, you know, we did a lot of outreach using this skeleton to kind of drum up interest in the university, interest in the Earth Sciences program and interest in the museum. Because one of the things about having a university museum like that is the level of collaboration between the museum team and the student team was something that was really fun to explore. So we kind of used that skeleton as a tool for outreach and Again, everyone who was involved in that project did such an amazing job. Uh, I was like the science guy on it, but you know, I am but one of a large team who have spent so many years uh, restoring that skeleton and mounting it in a, I think, really pleasing way. It's it, it's a lovely skeleton as well. It's uh, it's pretty complete. It's really well preserved, and it looks really nice in the gallery now. Whenever I'm in Manchester, I always. Uh, Go and pay it a visit. Yeah, obviously. You do. <laughs> and to have Tenontosaurus, of all things, as kind of your dinosaur, because if there's any dinosaur that never gets any respect in popular culture, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's uh, it's always Deinonychus food, no matter, n- yeah. no, no matter what. It, it, it's uh, n- nice for Tenontosaurus to be the star of its own story instead of something for a raptor to kill. I um I can imagine that when you did your musculoskeletal reconstructions of Deinonychus, you must have felt rather dirty. Um, oh, I know. It was like yeah. I was. It was like I was betraying Tenontosaurus, even though I do <laughs> quite like Deinonychus as well. There aren't many dinosaurs I don't like, but yeah, that did feel like betrayal. Can you think of any you don't like? 
Oh, I head. don't like Kakarodontosaurs. I think they're really boring, which will probably oh, get me too, in hot water. Too vanilla. Yeah, it's like if you took an Allosaurus and took a Tyrannosaurus, mixed them together and removed all the interesting bits, which I'm sure <laughs> won't upset anyone. Sorry, Kakarodontosaur fans who are listening. They're, they're just too right. vanilla. There are none of them. Don't worry; they, they don't really exist. Everyone's a you know big T Rex fan, or that's well, you know it's T Rex or bust as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, so um, <laughs> speaking of which, I mean, obviously you have produced a fair number of musculoskeletal reconstructions of Tyrannosaurus recently. Presumably, not just for the hell of it. I mean, are you allowed to say why is this is working towards anything in particular? There, I mean, or? it started for the hell of it. Um, I think the, the the first one that I really did uh, in depth was uh, based on the Smithsonian skeleton uh, because they made their full skeleton scan available online. So I downloaded it, uh, put it in kind of a estimated neutral mid-stance posture and just did like a, I guess you would call it like an e-course model because it's not necessarily a model that you would do kind of data-driven research on, but having all those muscles sculpted in 3D was a way just first to just build a personal reference for myself, but then, you know, share that with other people and allow them to use that as a reference. And it's just been an iterative process as I've gotten better at sculpting muscles in 3D. I've always gone back to T-Rex as kind of like a benchmark, like redo it. And it, it you know, it helps me see how much I've improved. But also recently yeah. I did sculpt a t-rex skeleton from scratch um kind of like an idealized t-rex skeleton that i could that was my own model that um so that was like cross-referenced with measurements and scans of a whole bunch of different specimens it's mainly based on the uh the new york one um yeah and which is you know it's my favorite t-rex because it's the jurassic park logo I was going to say, I'm so happy that you said that AMNH5027 is your favorite T Rex because my favorite T Rex too. And then it's when I say so it to people, cool. they just look at you and go, eh? like, really, it's, that one? But it's aesthetically on. pleasing. I'm a, and yes, I, I'm a Trix girl. Trix is pretty cool. But for most of like the 20th century, it was like the T Rex, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, fair enough. It, it's. Uh, it's certainly been the most influential on pop culture because the Jurassic Park logo is based on it. And the Jurassic Park T-Rex itself is like a, almost like a stylized adaptation of it that takes, you know, liberties, gives it bigger arms and angrier eyebrows. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So I, I built that skeleton, like every single bone was like an independent model. And I, just so that I would have that, idealized Tyrannosaurus model that I could use to, I could animate it, put it in poses. And I decided to sculpt the muscles on top of it as well. And the eventual plan is to actually 3D, is to 3D print that as a physical model so that can people can have it. It's like a desktop reference for art. It's one of those things, you know, there's plenty references for how dinosaurs should look in kind of like a lateral view and maybe you'll also get a top view but having that three-dimensional multi-view reference is the ultimate goal here so i'd like to translate that into a physical model that sounds like it would be invaluable for a lot of people i think so when it comes to your own life reconstructions people can hardly um Accuse you of not being rigorous with your approach. <laughs> I mean, they can. They might try. <laughs> they might try as whether they'll succeed. But um, 
I did notice, I mean, you have done a few sort of CG renders, uh, not just the Jurassic Park ones, you've done some fleshed out dinosaurs uh, as well, but you seem to be particularly fond of uh, line art. I mean, I've seen a few, obviously if you go on DeviantArt Art Station, there are lots of your line art life reconstructions, um, just monochrome. And has the Greg Paul comparison been made before? Um, because I don't mean, I don't want to imply too much yeah uh the the greg paul comparison has been made before i I remember when uh uh, john conway compared me to greg paul once and to be honest i'd actually take that as a compliment Uh, i think from john it would definitely would be yeah yeah yeah, um well the, the the thing is um the i think the reason i'm interested in doing technical illustrations of dinosaur anatomy probably does start with greg paul like like i remember i got the like the first edition of the the princeton field guide and was just like mesmerized by all the skeletal illustrations in that so i think it's very fair to look at my art and compare it i mean i take it as a compliment because you know he's been a he's been a very influential paleo artist for a long time but there's definitely inspiration there 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 are certain aesthetic qualities to your art that remind me a bit of his in particular the sort of um I want to say the, the cleanliness of the dinosaurs, not too much extraneous, not too many extraneous sort of caruncles and spiky bits and sort of, um, you know, fleshy stuff hanging everywhere, that, which has become, it seems to become quite fashionable these days. <laughs> Whereas um, your art retains quite a, a clean, um, not necessarily conservative, but you don't make your dinosaurs overly yeah. decorative. I think because I study um musculoskeletal anatomy i think when i'm doing a life reconstruction i'm just in drawn towards doing a life reconstruction in a way that highlights that a bit more because that's because musculoskeletal anatomy is an element that i study i think i'm probably just like a little bit more prone to making dinosaurs a little bit more toned a little bit more landmarked so i think it just reflects my my personal biases a little bit really yeah, basically, you don't want to bury all your hard work under layers of fat and fleshy wattles and yeah. you know nonsense like that. You want to be I do like that. quite, I do like quite heavy wrinkles though. Like a lot of my di- my dinosaur liner is very is very wrinkly, but, but not in a like, way You don't like feature scales on the faces of tyrannosaurs, though. Oh yeah, um, well, it's 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 one of those things. There's there's a lot of room for interpretation here, but um, I don't necessarily think that. Tyrannosaur maxillae have really weird textures and I don't think I've ever been like completely satisfied by any comparison uh, that's been made to extant animals. There's nothing that quite has that same texture and I'm really not 100% sure what that texture means for life appearance, what kind of anatomy that's actually supporting. Um, when I do it, I kind of have like just this kind of not smooth, but like less divided up hardened skin covering it. But that is to an extent a lot of that is to an extent speculation. I'm like I said, I'm just not totally convinced by any model for Tyrannosaur facial appearance. And that includes the one that I prefer to draw. I don't necessarily think that's more or less plausible than other options it's just it, it it's where i've comfortably settled after obsessively eyeballing these skulls and realizing that maybe that looks like it could be that but then ultimately offering a non-committal shrug at the end of it yeah 
And of course, people get really heated over this online for no particular reason. I mean, it's an extremely silly thing to get upset about. <laughs> sort of uh, facial tissue on a yeah, long extinct like, reptile. Does a, Tyrannos- does a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, this, you know, six to ten ton predatory animal become less cool if you can't see all of its teeth? No. <laughs> Obviously it's, not. It's like, there's so there are so many more things about Tyrannosaurus that I, I I think are so much more interesting than the exact configuration of soft tissues on its on its face, and it is quite funny to see how that's become this very fixated point in a lot of internet dinosaur discussion. Do, do you ever go back to some of your older work, Matt, and go like, "Oh, I dropped the ball on that one," or "That one needs a rethink." <laughs> oh, you've all, done a lot all, of different all, versions all of Stegosaurus, I see. Yeah, um, it, it, it's just little things where um, I, I, I like to do the same animal multiple times. Like I said, it's like a benchmark. Um, most of my old artwork that I really don't like isn't online anymore. So I, I do think like it's just one of those things when when you are an illustrator or a modeler, there's this there's always this desire to iterate and improve. I mean, I don't think you should necessarily be that ashamed or afraid to show some of your older work in there. With the, I mean, fair enough, you've got to put an emphasis on this is my older work. But I think it does help people who are just starting out sometimes to be able to see, well, this is where Matt's at now, and that's where he was several years ago. Yeah. Therefore, yeah, so I, it, it I does, suppose that's a good point. I, I think it does give inspiration to other people to improve and work on their own work and not feel discouraged. I mean, yeah. I, I'm more talking about like the 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 doodles and sketches that i did when i was in school and posted online that kind of thing you're already young but um (laughs) 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 when it's kind of personal art i think there's uh there's more inclination to kind of leave good enough alone but when you're doing the type of stuff that i do and the type of stuff that scott hartman does because we are making artwork that is intended to be used as technical reference there's always this desire to put our best foot forward and represent these skeletons and these muscles according to the best knowledge that we are able to give at the time uh, and I think that's one of the one of the things that makes it a little bit more distinct from uh, artwork with a less technical purpose. Okay. I mean, of course, not all of your artwork is strictly technical. Majority of it, perhaps, is. Obviously, your um, you know, if one looks go and look at your DeviantArt art station, it's dominated by musculoskeletal reconstructions diagrams. But on the other hand, there are things like um, a woman walking by a window with a giant tyrannosaur peering in. So a bit of whimsy here and there. Yeah, it's like I think when you know you look at stuff like that, and it's like, hmm, does this guy like Jurassic Park? <laughs> well, that and the <laughs> literal recreations of scenes from Jurassic, Park, or at least <laughs> I, I don't think it's on in that gallery. But I did attempt to kind of recreate the the breakout shot. I adore the Jurassic Park T Rex for all of its quirks and weirdness and deviations from the real thing. I, I really love it as a creature design, but I also really love it as this landmark in in VFX. So about a year ago, I was like, 
I, I, I wanted to essentially do a, a master study of it where I wanted to recreate the Jurassic Park T-Rex, not in kind of like an updated or more scientifically accurate or more technically detailed form. I wanted to see if I could create, recreate those original VFX as they looked and see how close I could get using modern software to recreate that 1993 look. And also I did a couple from the lost world as well. So yeah, 1997 as well, which was the year I was born. But you were able to do this by yourself on your computer while back in the early nineties, they needed the entire budget of industrial light and magic for it. Oh, I think it's uh, it's, just a, it's a testament to just how far computer technology has become absolutely you know you have blender as this open source free software that you can run on a pretty decent laptop and that's so versatile it has so much of the capability that these you know big budget pipeline things have i mean you know blender is being used in big budget studio pipeline stuff these days so, but, but that was one of the things um the the jurassic park t-rex that i made in blender through Blender, I could have made it more detailed. I, I I could have like used more advanced effects. There were there were times when I was trying to recreate those shots where I was almost fighting against the more the more advanced capabilities of Blender. Yeah. So st- even stuff like the the way lighting is set up, um, Blender's image based renderer like simulates light really realistically in a way that 1993 computers couldn't so i had to kind of fight <laughs> against that and, and 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 do worse than well not worse but find kind of these workarounds to make things more basic than the yeah. software would do just as a baseline default and i think that one of the reasons i wanted to do it was one i love that design and i wanted to see if i could remake it just cause but another reason i did it was i think you know, I, I really wanted to get into how those shots were made. And, you know, it, well, that's the reason you do a master study, right? It's to understand the process of the artist better. <laughs> um, the other thing relatedly I wanted to ask was, um, having spent so much time creating all these skeletal, what, 3D skeletal models, rigs, um, working on musculature at various levels in great detail, has it affected the way that you appreciate some paleo art? I mean, was there stuff that you enjoyed when you were younger or maybe before you started all this uh, elaborate modeling that now you look at and think, hmm, well, actually, you start noticing things that are off here and there. I mean... It's a bit of both. There's there's some paleo art I really liked when I was younger that I think I appreciate more now after understanding the process that goes into it. Like um, four-year-old Matt watching uh, the Disney dinosaur film, you know, with Aladar. I don't, uh, you know, I go back and watch that now. And, you know, if you can kind of like get past the the very anthropomorphized faces, like the bodies of those iguanodon are amazing. And like the background dinosaurs are just technically great paleo art i mean when when you have david krentz doing the models technically great paleo art is what's going to happen but it's been one of those things where some of the dinosaur stuff that i'm nostalgic for i've appreciated it more whereas other stuff i'm like oh like 
um, not to stay on T-Rex for too long, but the weird uh, unduly grade stance of the walking with dinosaurs T-Rex. That. Famously the worst model in the series. <laughs> yeah, I, I like say. You know, as a kid, I loved that thing. I thought it was so cool when I look at it now. It's like it's walking on the tips of its toes in such an extreme way that it looks like it has two ankles. That model is probably one of the worst in that series i mean and i came to that conclusion yeah. without you know without all of your knowledge of musculoskeletal anatomy <laughs> it's yeah. just it looks off it's a bit derpy and it's a shame because i think like the the other big theropods in the show have aged considerably better i, I thought mean, so. allosaurus is fantastic yeah i, I really like the way that works yeah it's... everything the weight it has so, so there's, a, there's a bit of both um i think one of the things it's really made me appreciate more is like actually, you know, really old paleo art stuff before my time. Um, you know, stuff like Knight and Burian. Because even though in terms of like, you know, overall skeletal proportions and posture and and, and soft and like I guess the most superficial soft tissue, they don't look like how we draw dinosaurs now. After becoming really familiar with modern day reptile and bird anatomy through my own studies through dissection work that i've done for my phd you can look at that old dinosaur art and see this real appreciation for animal anatomy even if some of it isn't necessarily applied in the same way we do it now you can tell that they were thinking about that anatomy and in some ways i I think I think in some ways a lot of older paleo art stuff that is less superficially accurate. I appreciate that more. That there's a sense that they were thinking more about the anatomy than some contemporary paleo art. Whereas now, you know, you can go on Google, you can get a picture of a dinosaur skeleton and do a quick proportionally accurate drawing without necessarily thinking about the inner workings too hard. Uh, I think one of the things that I really like about old paleo art that I've only come to appreciate after studying anatomy a bit more formally is just how much they cared about the way living creatures look. Even if we know T-Rex doesn't stand like that, we know it's not proportioned like that, we know Diplodocus isn't dragging its belly through a swamp. I've said for a while that you can really tell with this old paleo art when the artist was a wildlife artist first. Mm. because of that it's sort of instinctive grasp of anatomy and the way that the animals seem to hang together as real creatures rather than as you say yeah um taking the approach of slapping a few things together and hoping that you know it is whatever it'll do it's a dinosaur um it doesn't necessarily have to make sense as a living being just as long as it looks vaguely yeah. like a brontosaurus you know coming out of a swamp whereas yeah somebody like Knight or burian various others yeah, but, um i mean we talked about burian last time but we did. Uh, i think Benjamin Hawkins is definitely a great example of this. Well, yeah, going right back to the oh, beginning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> going back to the very beginning, he had absolutely nothing to work with. I, I did a, um, a kind of seminar recently um, on the history of scientific illustration. It was for the uh, Progressive Paleontology Conference, which we hosted in Liverpool this year. And I had a whole aside about um, the Crystal Palace dinosaurs and why they are so important. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, and this is one detail that they score above a lot of later paleo art, not necessarily contemporary paleo art, but 
you know, maybe like early 20th century stuff, is that all of the dinosaurs in Crystal Palace Park, except for the one iguanodon that's lying down, have parasagittal gait. They're not sprawling. They're, they're holding their limbs vertically in the way we'd expect dinosaurs to, which, uh, you know, you look at a lot of quadrupedal dinosaur art that follows on from that in the immediate decades, and you go back to this sprawling stance. It's this one thing where the the Crystal Palace dinosaurs were really quite ahead of their time in just the way the limbs are posed, even if Megalosaurus isn't a quadruped. But still, it's, it's something that I really admired about that. I once heard someone say the phrase, the paleo art pendulum, and how it can kind of swing back and forth between different ways of doing things. And sometimes the old out of vogue way comes back in vogue. Yeah. Which brings us back to T-Rex lips. Oh, no, no, ah, it doesn't. Nope. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, I'll go quietly. I'll go quietly. Anyway, um, Matt, to wrap up, um, I imagine most of your future will be revolving around your PhD. Is there anything we can expect from you in the near future art-wise? Oh, well, that's one of the things at the moment because my PhD submission is quite imminent. Uh, There's less and less time for art over these next few months. So uh, I guess I could say uh, look forward to my papers, providing they get through review. That's maybe exciting. Um, But I I always have some illustrations cooking. Like I said, I want to develop my a couple of my muscle sculpts into uh, printable physical models. That's something that's very much on the kind of near future horizon. Yes, we'll be looking forward to that very much. Yeah, like the, the the ultimate goal, I guess, would be to kind of have like a model of, you know, a representative of each major group done. Like I have a quite recently, I sculpted a Diplodocus skeleton, and I, I would like to put muscles on that. Uh, so. There's always going to be more stuff coming just with the whole finishing a PhD thesis thing. Yes, that's quite I a big deal. I can't say when that will be. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, there's a... Who would have thought a PhD thesis was a lot of work? Yeah, who would have guessed? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Matt, thank you so much for uh, for doing this interview with us. We, yes. Uh, and wish you notice. all the best for your PhD. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed it. You know, if someone says, hey, Matt, you want to talk about dinosaurs? I'm going to be like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Thanks again, Matt. Uh, great interview, bones and all. Bones and muscles. And Thank you. Musculoskeletal diagrams and exploding skeletons. On <laughs> yes. And whimsical Jurassic Park reconstructions. Yeah, I, I did enjoy was talking about how painful it was almost to make a T-Rex that was deliberately too narrow and with arms that were too long. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I've seen people on Twitter uh, do their own version of the T-Rex breakout scene. Uh, with a more scientifically up-to-date T-Rex, and it looks too good. It doesn't quite fit. It's not it? a monster anymore. It's not yeah. a monster in this movie scene. Mm. It's like the realistic-looking kind of animal. That's just... Yeah, and also you begin <laughs> to notice that the T-Rex in Jurassic Park really is oversized. Everyone always well, talks about the raptors yeah, being oversized, completely. but the T-Rex is oversized. 
It might it might depend on oh, the scene, yeah, of course. I, I don't so. know. I never really paid attention. You have to ask Darren H because he's all over like Jurassic Park goofs. But you have to like how scalistically consistent it is because um... Jurassic Park doesn't do consistency. <laughs> you have an entire ravine appearing out of thin air. Jurassic Park does not do consistency. I know, and you have fences no, that go nowhere, no, and you have cables attached to the car, things. and you have pop plants. Yeah. This, but I mean, okay, so the animatronic T Rex is a size, obviously, and it doesn't change size. But yeah. the CGI one could change size. I don't really pay that much attention to it because, you know, it's just, it's close enough. I mean, in some films it's done deliberately. Yeah. Like in the original King Kong, they deliberately made him bigger in New York um, so he looked more impressive against the buildings. Yeah, I well. mean, I've seen a real gorilla once and they're not that big. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, the original King Kong, they made King Kong bigger deliberately in New York than on the island. Um, and apparently the Peter Jackson one, they tried to keep it more consistent, which is why he looks like a gnat on the Empire State Building, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, that movie. Think about wrapping up the episode, I suppose. Thanks everyone for listening again. It's, um, I hope it hasn't sounded too chaotic for our listeners because this is we are trying something different um, with our episode, and this um, on this instance we are slightly less scripted than we might uh, otherwise have been. Um, so I hope that came across all right. Um, that's all I'm going to say because these are the aspects which which pain me the most um, when I listen back to the episodes. But I thought I'd put a disclaimer out there. Yeah, you know what? If you're listening to this episode and you've listened so far, um, I would like some feedback. Does this work better for you as a listening experience? Do you prefer for us to go to the very scripted, especially the news portion at the beginning of the show that we uh, that we sort of forewent today. Do you prefer us going back to that or do you like this off-the-cuff style more? Uh, please let us know uh, in the comments of whatever platform you're listening this on. Yes, please let us know what kind of balance, essentially, is um, one that you think we should strike. So yeah, 27 episodes and we're still kind of figuring this thing out, but I'm enjoying the process. See you in the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Haasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon.